Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. I would like to welcome to the show today Man, this is a mouthful. Get ready. This is exciting to even say this. This is my first Brigadier General, Mike Oster, retired United States Army, aka Mike. I just love saying Brigadier General because I come from a military family with multiple generations. I just love and respect people from our military. So I am just honored to be here with you today. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Fantastic. Let me ask you this, Mike. If there's one or two things about you that we might need to know just to frame up this conversation, just give us a high-level summary. What are a couple things to help us get started today? There's a lot of titles and things, but the two I'm most proud of is husband and father. I've been married for 35 years. I have four kids, a couple grandkids, another grandkid on the way. Super excited about my family and all the things that go along with that. And they range in age from 22 to 35. And it's just been an absolute joy raising them and seeing them grow up. And they put up with a lot for me. So that's the first thing, right? Husband and father. The second thing is I am a wholly different person today than the guy that started raising kids at the age of 20. And that has been a growth journey, which is why I'm excited now to be retired and having had the opportunity to serve and wear the uniform and follow my purpose and my passion for so many years, but now move on to the next phase, which is go share the message of what I've learned along the way through 36 years of service, 35 years of marriage, raising four kids. There's just too much not to go out and share with people, but hopefully they can get to where I feel like I'm at with attitude and excellence and those kind of things. Hopefully they can get there at a younger age than I did. And if I can help in any way to do that, that's my new mission. Oh, man, we're not going to have enough time to unpack everything you just shared. That's awesome. I'm so happy like inside that the first thing you said was husband and father. That's always the first thing I say is husband and father. And I'm way out of my weight class here, way out of my league with my wife. She's so, so far ahead of me. And then uh, kids. So thank you for kicking that off. How did you meet uh, said this amazing woman you call wife for 34 years? So uh, tell us about the origin story, please. It's a great story. So we're both born and raised in South Dakota, but we grew up about 200 miles apart in very different communities. And as fate would have it, my older brother, who was eight years older than me, his first teaching job was at her high school. And she was a junior in high school when he went up there and started teaching. He was also a football coach. And so I would go visit and watch him coach football and be up there. And I met her through that. Fast forward a couple of years, we ended up going to school together at South Dakota State University. And we knew each other well enough by then to look each other up. And we actually ran into each other at the freshman get to know you dance. And, and I didn't even recognize yeah. her. I went and picked her out of, the, of this huge crowd because I just immediately was like, that could be the one. Five minutes into college, it could be the one. And I went and asked her to dance. And she's like, you don't remember me, do you? And I'm like, what's that now? <laughs> I remembered her. I just didn't know that was her. And so that's a whole story for another day. But that's how we met. It was great how it all worked out. 
Fantastic. So this is South Dakota State University. You'd already met. And now, what was your dance move, by the way, if you can recall? Oh, my dance move. There's so many. I, I don't even want to go into it. Just, okay. Okay. <laughs> just using everything that implies. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for the origin story. And I'd love to go to your journey. You named several journeys so far. I'd love to focus in first on the beginning of your, say, your professional career. Can you take us back to the beginning of your professional career and park us right in the middle of that parking lot of something that was eye-opening and challenging for you from the very beginning, please? Yeah, so you're talking my military career. Love to. Yeah, love to go to that one. My father was a Korean War veteran. And when I was a kid growing up, occasionally he would pull out the old Kodak slide projector that he had the little button in the carousel and it would change the picture up on the kitchen wall. And he would show us those slides. And I don't really even remember the stories, but I remember seeing him in uniform leaning on a tank and being a soldier. And I, from a very young age, was like, I want to do that. And as I got older, it started to become, I want to serve, but I want to go to college too. And then I found out about this National Guard option where I could do both. So when I was 17, and because you can join at 17 with your parents' permission, I went and joined the the National Guard, thinking I would do a six-year stint. It would help me pay for college. I would get to wear the uniform and serve. And I ended up becoming an officer, so I stayed a little bit longer. And I was a traditional guardsman. I was a one weekend a month, two weeks a year guy for uh, the first half of my career and got a call from then our our adjutant general or two-star general. I was a captain. He asked me to come out and be his executive officer, kind of his admin assistant, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I did that for what I thought was going to be 18 to 24 months. And in the middle of that, 9-11 happened. And it just never seemed like the right time to exit the full-time side of the military. So I went full-time in 2000, 9-11 happened, of course, in 01, and I just kept taking assignments. I deployed a couple times, once to Iraq, once to Afghanistan. And so it just made sense for me to stay on the active duty side, and I was fortunate enough to have an amazing career and worked with and for and uh, some amazing people. I had incredible people that worked for me, just an incredible, blessed career. But it was just that young, want-to-be-like-dad deal that got me into the military, and it was opportunities along the way that just shaped that I ended up in there for 36 years, 22 of which were active duty. I so appreciate everything you just shared. I, I'm curious, you went full-time in 2000 and then 9-11 happened in 2001. Right after 9-11 happened, what was the moment of adversity or the challenge that you faced uh, post 9-11 when you were in that full-time position? I was part of a battalion headquarters at the time that was, and not to get too military, but it, it was a non-deployable headquarters, meaning that this entity doesn't go overseas and fight in combat. But every unit okay. that fell under our battalion did. And we deployed every okay. unit that fell under us. And I was having a lot of guilt and frustration that I knew our team was not going to go. And I couldn't deal with that. And so I volunteered and went as an individual deployer, which meant I had to come home and tell my wife and our four kids that I was going to volunteer to leave them. Everybody will go if called, right? That's in the uniform. That's the thing. When you go looking for it, you're sacrificing something at that moment in time that you don't have to, you're deciding to. And so that was a challenging time for us. Back to the angel I'm married to, she said, whatever it takes, whatever you need, we got it at home, you go do what you gotta do. It was just one of those deals where I couldn't find purpose in what I was doing here because I needed to be there. Where I had just sent 800 soldiers in different units to different locations, I just felt like I needed to do that. And that was just my personal challenge at the time that I needed to take care of. And so I was fortunate. I went over to serve in Kuwait and Iraq on that deployment. I was an individual deployer. I met up with a small team over there. We did logistics missions all over Southern and actually all over Iraq for about eight months. And that was the struggle, right? And watching everybody else deploy and not deploy. 
Yeah. So many places. I wonder what was it like on the flight over there? Like you just left your family and you were going to serve that first that first day, that first night flying over there in 2001. What was that like? It was all great because when you do an individual deployment at that time, you go through Fort Bliss, Texas as an individual logman T. A lot of people down there are doing the same thing. So it's you're all in the same boat. You got that camaraderie immediately and everything was fine. I was calling home. We were doing great. When the airplane was coming in on final into, we landed in Kuwait at Camp Doha. All of a sudden, I was like, what was I thinking? I don't have to be here right now. I didn't have to do this. And you have no idea what you're getting into. Now, when you, you land and you're there for a while, Kuwait's a very safe place or was a very safe place in the grand scheme of things. So that wasn't really the, the holy crap, this is going to happen. And it felt like it because I didn't know any better. And so I did. I was thinking, what if this goes terribly wrong and I did this on purpose and I didn't need to and I'm going to leave a wife and four kids? It felt very selfish at that moment in time, but it all worked out. And I did find the mission that I had when I was over there. I found tremendous purpose in that. And I felt like I needed to be there. And what I was doing was making a difference and in a domino effect, potentially saving lives downrange. And so it, it ended up turning out very well and a little divine intervention didn't never hurts. And so a lot of praying and a lot of faith-based reconsideration of what we were doing continued support from my wife every time we got a chance to talk. But that was the, the oh my moment for me was, what are you doing here? This is pretty selfish, Oster. What were you thinking? And then you have to get through that and fight through it. And Yeah. I wonder if there's a moment in your, either over there when you were in Kuwait or moving forward at some point in your military career, if there was a moment where you felt this complete fear or stress, just the hardest thing is being a leader and being in combat or deploying troops, is there a moment you can share with us so we might have some insight into you know, how brigadier generals deal with things or what they see? Love to explore a moment if you could think of one. When I went the first time, I wasn't leading anybody. I was a team member, well, a team of about four military and, and then all civilians. And I was not in a leadership role. I was in a operations role. Well, that one was a little bit different. When I deployed the second time, I was a battalion commander we had a 68-person battalion headquarters, and we fell in and took over multiple units that totaled up to about 1,000 soldiers that I was the battalion commander for. That's when I realized getting ready for that deployment is when I was reminded, and you really, it cements in for you that no leader leads alone. There's just no way to do the job that I had to do and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lead it. I'll just make all the decisions. You have to build that support network around you of people you can trust. And I was very blessed to be able to build a team of people I knew and had worked with previously, put them in places that I needed them, and then absolutely lean on them and allow them to be a sounding board. At the end of the day, you have to make the hard decisions. And if things go wrong, you own it. But having the ability to have a group of people around you that you could really lean on and really trust and really know that they were going to give you solid advice and they were going to be a solid support mechanism. And then that just works in every aspect of life. You don't have to be leading in combat for that to be true. You don't have to be leading at all. When you're making life decisions, you need that. I call it the power of five. You need five people in your network that you know you can call at any moment, say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Am I right? Am I wrong? What do you think? And at the end of the day, we make the decision for ourselves. That was the huge takeaway for me. And I was a lieutenant colonel at that time, fairly high ranked. And it didn't matter when I made colonel, when I made general, it was the same at every level. You need those people around you that you can know and trust. And I watched people try to lead very solo. And it just, it's exhausting for one thing. And it's not proficient. I wonder how many people are in the military that are trying to lead solo 
that they just hit a wall and then they have to really adapt and overcome that. I wonder if that's especially prevalent in a lot of men. What do you think about that? I think it's a belief that I have to do this on my own to prove that I'm ready for the next level. And what I found was when I watched people build teams around them and use that team to lift the entire team up or lift everybody up, those were the people that you knew were ready for the next level. The, The ones over there trying to prove it, they've probably been promoted one rank past their capability set. They're probably good right where they're at. It became very telling. I think when I was a young leader, I was one of those, I can do this myself to prove that I'm a great leader. I had senior ranking officers that pulled me aside and said, hey, this is not a one-man show. This is not a solo game. And they mentored me. And I was very, at the time, you feel a little bit like I thought I was a pretty good leader. And they're just trying to help. And you learn to take that advice. In fact, one of the greatest compliments I received when I was a battalion commander in combat was I had a lieutenant that was advising me on some kind of tricky areas. I mean, it was an older lieutenant, but still several ranks below my rank at the time. And one day she told me that, sir, the one thing I really appreciate about you is that you're still learning. You're not afraid to still be learning, even though you outrank me by this far. And I didn't really think of it at the time. But as I as I thought back on that, I thought, man, that's a huge compliment for somebody to tell you that they can see that you're okay still learning. And I think it's a great thing for them to understand as they go up in rank that we're never done. I don't even General Schwarzkopf, we we talked about a little bit before we turned the, the cameras on. Always learning, right? You're never done learning. Yes. I wonder, is this a core value of yours or something you came to realize later in your career that, oh, I'm intentionally always learning, always open to feedback and curious. Has that always been there for you or did you come into that? I think that realization of when you deploy as a battalion commander and you're going to have a thousand souls, mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and husbands and wives that are in your charge, in the charge of the team that you've built, you realize that I'll take help wherever I can get it. Certainly, I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to get help there. But I'm going to look around me and say, let's get all inputs here. And then when I have to make a decision, I will. But I'm going to get as much information as possible. I had great advice from an, an individual before I deployed. I said, what do you do if you deploy over there and something bad happens? What if you lose a soldier? How do you live with that? And the response that he gave me, which at the time was very frustrating, was he said, all you can do is all that you can do. And I was like, that's not helpful at all. And I walked out. And I just kept running it over in my head. All that you can do is all that you can do. And if you've done everything you can possibly do, the enemy still gets a vote. But if I've done everything I could possibly do, at least then, although tragic and hard, you'll probably be able to sleep at some point because you've done everything that you can do. And in life, the enemy gets a vote, not just in combat, but in life. After that, it was whatever it takes, any, anywhere I can get smarter, faster, stronger, I'm there. I'm signed up. I'm going in. Everybody has a voice until it's time to make the decision. And then everybody gets on board because they had an opportunity to at least be heard. And it's much easier to get them on board if they had a chance to get heard. Fantastic. When you said, did you say the enemy has a vote? Can you elaborate on that a little bit more, please? Just a little bit more on that philosophy. I'd love to hear more. Yeah, some people would refer to it as anything that can go wrong, will go wrong kind of theory or something like that. My thing is you can do everything right and bad things still can happen. Because sometimes there's people out there trying to keep you from accomplishing your mission. In the military, that's a very accurate thing to think about. But it's true in life. Sometimes it's just life in general. You're going to get on a call at 1 o'clock today and you've done everything you can to prepare. And all of a sudden your computer decides that it's going to reboot. And so now I'm going to be late because the enemy gets a vote. And sometimes that's just chance. Sometimes it's somebody out there really working to try to derail you. And sometimes we're doing it to ourselves, right? Sometimes the enemy is us. We're our own worst enemy sometimes. 
Well, you know what? Before we go fast forward, talk about your book and your website, I just have to scratch an itch. Over your right shoulder, there is this beautiful plaque that has some medals and some patches. I'm curious, what is that gold ribbon medal back there? Because that thing is beautiful. What is that? That's the Ancient Order of St. Christopher. That is the Transportation Regimental Association. And if you're a transportation officer and you're in for so long and you accomplish certain things, you can be inducted into this order, right? So it's a fraternity for logisticians that are transportation specific. And so I was awarded that, I think, when I was a captain. Yeah, it's cool. It's, military, we're big on coins and ribbons and awards. And I will tell you that they call those I love me boxes or I love me walls and things like that. For me, everything on in that box has significance because I can relate it back to people that I worked with or things that we did as a team or there's not a single thing in there that's just my coaster. It's all because of the teams that I was on and because of the people I served with. And the, quite frankly, it's luck and timing, good and bad, in career. I had luck and timing to end up as a battalion commander in a combat zone and had a thousand soldiers that worked under us and never lost a single one. That's not because I was doing something ridiculously different than anybody else. It's a little bit of divine intervention. It's a little bit of prior planning. It's a little bit of blind luck. I was just fortunate. And so everything that's in there is a reminder, like the combat patch that's in there. I worked for an amazing brigade mm -hmm. commander who taught me a ton about what I needed to do over there. And so those kind of things are, are cool for me to be able to look back and that kind of makes me smile. Some of them make me a little sad, but most of them make me smile. Man, I want to sit down with you and talk about every single one of them because I love that. Everything in my office right now is my wife calls it clutter. I call it an organized masterpiece of all of the memories. Everything has an emotional attachment of some kind. It brings me some type of emotion. So I love that you have that. I love that you have that. I'd love to talk a little bit about your book. And I absolutely love your saying, can you go a little bit into making excellence your average? And that just gets me fired up even saying that. It makes me want to go and do something right now. How did you come to those words? Because this is, yeah, help inspire us and teach us some here. Making excellence your average, Mike. Yeah. So the title of the book is It Starts With Attitude and then How to Live in a Place Where Excellence Becomes Your Average. That evolved probably about 15 years ago when I was running the recruiting battalion for the South Dakota Army National Guard. And I was excited about it. I loved recruiting. I loved sales and marketing and all the things that go with that. I loved the fact that we were giving young men and women in the state of South Dakota the opportunity to serve and wear the uniform. I'm passionate about the fact that not everybody that wants to gets to. We turn away a whole bunch of people at the entrance pro military entrance processing stations because they're not qualified medically or morally or something. So a lot of people go home disappointed. And so if you get the privilege to wear the uniform, you should be excited about it. And so I was trying to pump up recruiters about you are a walking billboard. You, you're in uniform every day. You're walking around out there. And every soldier that's in uniform is a walking billboard in my mind. But in that uh -huh. particular situation, they were trying to recruit other people to come and do what they were doing as far as serving and wearing uniform. We were in a meeting one day and they said, we need to get everybody at a level of excellence. And I said, we need to get everybody to a level where excellence is just average for us. And that's where it started for me. And I didn't even know what I was saying. I was drawing and doing different stuff. And then I wrote it down after everybody left. And I was like, I think I'm going to do something with that. And I actually, again, I talked to my older brother, who's a mentor of mine and has been for my whole life. And I told him that I, my new saying was excellence is average. And he said, that's stupid. Excellence is the top. There's nothing above it. How can it be average? And I'm like, now, there's something above it. There's super spectacular, super awesome. I mean, you pick the word, but there's something beyond excellence where you're just lighting it up at a level that you just can't even hardly comprehend. 
And then there's great, which is below excellence, right? And so if excellence is my average, on a bad day, I'm still functioning at a level of great. But on a good day, man, I am, I'm lighting it up. And you think about people that there is really good basketball players, and then there's Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. That's a whole mm. other level. Every really good, or Steph Curry now in today's, right? There's excellence, and then there's another level. We can do that too. And then the other part of that, the reason that it, it kept getting traction is I found the start with why the whole Simon Sinek made it really famous again. It's been around for a couple hundred years, but in my own life, it wasn't just the what's your why overall. It's what's your why for every place where you spend the most valuable resource you have your time. What's your why in every one of those? And if you can't do understand or comprehend or define your why at a level where you're going to be so invested that you want to do it at excellence, then stop wasting your time in that area. So if it's worth doing, worth spending your time, it should be worth doing at a level of excellence being your average. So that's how it came to be. Wow. What I you've inspired me to think about is just every day showing up in every single scenario and why am I here? Why is it so important that today I'm having coffee before practice with my assistant coach? Why am I showing up to soccer practice for my girls' team? By the way, this is the last practice for the playoffs, start, her first playoffs. Why is it so important? I know, super fired up about this. And I wonder how we might get this to be the tripwire that just always goes off, always on autopilot in our mind so that we are exhibiting excellence on a more regular recurring basis. And I just love the way you framed it. If you're having a bad day, that means it's great. My off day is great. I absolutely love that. How would you know if you're having an off day? As someone who practices excellence as your average, how would you know if you're having an off day? I think you know the same way somebody knows that's running at a lower level all the time, but still has a bad day. A bad day is still going to feel like a bad day because your level of great, which is going to be amazing, is still not where you're normally at. And so you're still going to feel that. But for the people around you, for the the other part I say about doing stuff on purpose and really understanding why you're doing it, it's, it's about bringing your best self every day, right? But sometimes your best self is a little below your average, but it's still great. And it's important, and it, but you still feel it because you know the people around you deserve your average, which is excellence. And so if you're just under that, even though you're so great, you feel it the same way. I think you just know, but it's a little less disheartening when you know that being just under your average is still better than most. And so you can find solace in that. And, and it's okay to have an off day. We're going to have those. And it's that's an opportunity to take a step back, take a deep breath, and maybe even take a knee and drink some water. But at the end of the day, we're going to say, okay, we're coming back tomorrow to get back to average, which is excellence. And we're going to live to fight another day. I have to just express real respect for you and honor you in the way that you just described that. You shared that your people around you, they deserve excellence from you. I wholly believe that. In any leadership role, you've got to show them, even on your average day, even on your off day, you've got to show them something. You've got to show up. I love the way you frame that. Your people, they deserve excellence from you. Amazing. I'm curious. I can see you right now in the camera and you look pretty fit. Talk to me a little bit about your exercise routine, because some people, when they retire, they actually don't keep up with staying fit and in shape. And you look like you're still in the gym on a regular basis. How, what's your routine been like since you've retired from the military? Yeah, that's a trick camera that I bought to make me look buff. So it's working. That's good. I'm glad I, for it. I, I think it goes back to a lot of different things. Back, back to that running recruiting thing when it was, I probably in my career, I got so invested in that job that I forgot 
how important it was for me to lead by example. I felt like I had the answer for everything. I was talking about attitude and I was talking about bringing your best self and doing all these things. And I wasn't taking care of who I was. And so how I was got a little bit off. And I was probably in the worst shape of my career telling all these recruiters that you need to be a walking billboard and got a little wake up call uh, when I took uh, one of our physical training tests that we have to take and I barely passed it. And I was always a guy that didn't just pass it. I was up towards the max of those tests. And I was like, this has to end now. I got back into the gym and I got back in shape and I decided that I was just going to stay like that. And then I had a couple daughters that were pretty cute and these guys started showing up at the house and I felt they needed to see that the dad could take him if he needed to. So that kind of kept me motivated too. <laughs> nice. Thank you. I'm so glad you said that because I feel the same way. And yeah, I've got three young girls and when boys start showing up, I like them to know that I'm here in a big way. So good. What does excellence mean to you now? You're officially retired from the military. What are you working at being excellent in now? Yeah, so my wife and I, have we have a couple of small businesses that we own with franchises uh, with Massage Envy that we got into because I was the last thing I did where I was separated from my family was I went to the Army War College through a fellowship down in Denver, Colorado at the University of Denver. And I was down there feeling sorry for myself because I was all alone and the family was back here. And I thought, I'm going to go get a massage. So I went to Massage Envy. And it was a journey. It didn't happen overnight. But I went a couple different times and I started to realize that what they were doing was part of what I was preaching about the four types of fitness, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And that part of taking care of yourself, the meditation, the yoga, the massage, whatever it is to be proactively being your best self. And that just fit right in with mind-body connection and the things that they were doing. So we looked at opening one in Rapid City, which is where I live, and we didn't have one. And we have since acquired one over in Sioux Falls. So I do that. And I'm just excited. We employ 70 people between the two locations. We do a couple thousand massages every year for our members and guests. It's incredible. And that's been a fun journey. But the real love and passion that I'm into now is the motivational speaking, the book, trying to get the leadership course out there and that'll launch in January. And that's really been a fun transition for me. But this not having a staff to do the work for me is tough. You're a man all on his own versus a general with a staff that can help you. So that's been a little bit. And then technology obviously changes daily. And so I always thought I was pretty tech savvy until I started to need all these different sites and tools. It's been a lot of fun. It's taking a little longer than I thought it would. The keynoting is I'm out doing that. But I want these follow-on products so people can take them with them and can use it for their journey in excellence. Oh, man. So successful career in the military and developing successful career in franchising and now working on the leadership course and everything you've shared today is worth its weight in gold and then some. And I wonder what's hard now about technology for you, because you might be able to source some people that can serve you or at least get some ideas out there. What are you finding to be most challenging now in this next stage of growing and scaling the leadership course and speaking? Where's the challenge there for you, Mike? It's all of the different tools that are out there now. It's getting more known on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and trying to build a list of people that you can send your email, your CRM lists and it's getting all those put together. I'm fortunate that I am working with a couple of different organizations that are helping me with that, but there's still work that you have to do. I need to get my book on audio, but I want to record it. And somebody said, well, you can record one chapter in AI and then it'll do the rest. And I'm like, yeah, that's where I'm a little old school. and I want to read the whole book, but it takes more time. And so it's just some of those things where there's people helping me get to what I need to use, but then I still have to be the person that executes in some capacities. 
So it's just balancing all that. I'm trying to enjoy my kids and my grandkids and my wife and I are traveling a little bit now and she's got a little bit more flexible schedule than she used to. So we got to enjoy life too. That takes more time than I thought it was going to. Yeah. I wonder how you manage the enjoying life, time with your spouse, grandkids, kids, scaling a business, scaling the franchises. And how do you make the right amount of time for you so that you're in harmony with yourself, Mike? Yeah, that kind of goes back to the, the gym. The gym for me is going to escape now. I, okay. I don't have anybody to impress anymore. I want to stay fit, right? I think that's impressive that you're committed to excellence in all aspects. So that matters to me. But that's also okay. an escape for me. That's my time. I might listen to a podcast. I might listen to a book on an audiobook. but it just lets me get lost in there. And physically, it's good for you. But then the other things that I'm doing, I've been lucky that So when I go to Sioux Falls to the other store that we own, my brother lives in Sioux Falls. That's an excuse to see my brother. My father-in-law is in a nursing home. He's in his 90s. That's on the way. So I can stop and see him. So there's some things that I can combine those things together and they live in harmony geographically. And also they overlap for different things that I need to be doing. Oftentimes, now that my wife's a little more flexible, she can go with me. Some of the travel we're doing is a work trip where she gets to go and we get to spend time. And then we're going to veer off and go see our son and daughter-in-law and grandson. We've been able to plan that out. I'm a voracious calendar user. If I see an opportunity, I'm plugging it in and laying it out and it's going to be detailed plan and then we're going to execute. <laughs> oh, excellent. So voracious calendar user, we can collaborate on this one. Are you Outlook or Gmail or yeah, Evernote or Outlook? Is it color-coded by the hour, by the category? We have- yeah, in the office, but busy, out of the office, vacation time. Yeah. So here's a good example. I am a Microsoft Outlook, the, the one that's on your computer user. Just switching to the web-based one has been a challenge for me, but I need to get to that one so that I can use Calendly and so those mm-hmm. things. But I've had the regular version of Microsoft Outlook for 25 years. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to make that leap, but you have to. If you want somebody to set up an appointment with you, they need to be able to go out and plug it in. We can't keep going back and forth. That's not efficient. So just those kind of things. You mentioned AI earlier, and I'm totally with you about reading my own book. My own book's coming out here. By the time this publishes, my first book we published, and I think your leadership course is, is coming up on your website soon. I want to get to that in a minute. But I wonder, are there any other places that you're using AI or have you thought about using AI yet? I started to use it a little bit for a blog that I just started doing. It's been kind of fun to take. So I can take a chapter of my book, drop it into ChatGPT, and tell it I want 10, 500-word blog posts based on this information. And it's pretty Mm. impressive what it kicks out. Now you got to go through and edit it and do some different things. And it's really just taking content and rewording it and moving it around. But it's been fun to use it for that. I don't know that I'll get much deeper into that because it just feels different for me. I know everybody's using it. I'm only going to do this for about 10 years. And so I figure I can sneak through some of the technologies and avoid them. But I, I will see. Never say never. Yeah, we use it for a number of things. I'd say the easiest thing is that whenever I have a client that has a challenge, a lot of people that I coach, they have not used AI. So I'll take them to you.com, Y-O-U.com, and hey, type your challenge in here and ask it to solve your problem through the lens of an entrepreneur in this industry. And it gives them an exoskeleton. I don't think that's the end prescription. It certainly doesn't hurt to have some ideas that are thrown in there from the big mass knowledge out there. I like that you appear to be more tech savvy and more forward thinking than a lot of people that would say they're in retirement from their main career. You're starting another one and you're growing it and traveling. So just, I love to see you are living excellence. We're trying, right? Every single day you get up and you just, you make the effort. And if you're doing what you love, and I'm so fortunate to be doing what I love, as I did when I served, 
in the military, I'm just super blessed. And there's hard work certainly involved. It takes some things lining up. It takes a very supportive family. Again, my spouse has been amazing and she's a, she's a pharmacist. She's busy. She's got, she's a career woman too, but still raised four kids and we're super blessed and we're enjoying life right now. We're still working really hard because I think that's what you should do. And we're having a good time doing it. I'm curious about your keynote speeches. What can you share with us a story of a memorable keynote speech that you've given in the past yeah. few years? Yeah, I don't know if there's one in particular, but I will tell you that when I do different groups and organizations, I'm blessed because my messaging is personal, right? It's about becoming better at who we are so we can be better in all we do. That's my messaging. It'll work for anybody. I can go speak. One week I'm speaking to a room full of 150 seed corn dealers. And the next week I got 100 bankers. And the next week it's school teachers and whatever. For me, the walking out of a presentation and knowing that you've made a difference, that happens for me the most when I go talk to educators. And I had the opportunity to go see teachers when we were recruiting because we were recruiting in their schools. And so then you go and I'll give you a free speech if you'll let us get our recruiters in here kind of thing. And just watching them light back up. They got into that profession for all the right reasons. But over time, you just get beat up and you get worn down and you it's just a really hard job. My brother and my sister are both educators and they're fantastic at it. But just watch the, how hard that is. And so I love going and talking to them and reigniting that fire and just seeing them get excited again and reminding themselves why they're doing what they're doing and deciding that, you know what, I'm doing this at a level of excellence. I deserve it. These kids deserve it. The people I love deserve it. I love doing it all the time. But that those are the most meaningful for me. I want to thank you, Mike. You've inspired me. I just wrote down what you said. I'm going to go listen to this again because I actually coach uh, one of the boards of education down here in one of our states and working with yeah. them. You have a you have an excellent message. And, and I love the idea. If you're going to do it at a level of excellence, this has been so helpful. I'd love to promote your leadership courses as much as we can. Where's the website and when are they going to be available for us? I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. By the time this publishes, they'll hopefully be live on my website. It's just mikeoster.com and it's M-I-K-E. It's Oster like the blender or like the appliance, O-S-T-E-R, mikeoster.com. And they'll be out there. The keynoting information is on there now. That's probably the best thing for people to do is just go to the website and see different things that are out there. And I'm excited because every time I go to an event now and I meet other speakers, they'll ask me if I've got this product or that service or am I doing this? And so we're just expanding it as we go. I, I just retired last year. And so this has been, uh, I really, I was just going to go keynote. That was my thing. I just want to go give talks and that's great. And they're like, no, <laughs> you need to be doing this and this. And, and at first I thought, no, I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm not doing that. And you get requests for it. And then you start to realize that, yeah, I go fire them up for an hour. That's cool. Give them an opportunity to put it in practice. That's where you can really make a difference with people. If you really want people to bring their best self, to get better at who they are so they can be better in all they do, then give them some tools to do that on a day-to-day basis, ongoing, not just a raw speech. And that's fun too. It's been a fun journey here the last uh, 15 months. Fantastic. This has been excellent to, to connect with you today. Are there places on social media? Is that a place where you're active on like Instagram or LinkedIn or anything like that, Mike? Yeah. So Instagram is at excellence is average. Uh, and then the other ones are, are just Mike Oster, like Facebook is Mike Oster and LinkedIn. And I'm not real active on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn really are the, the sites. I'm going to look at this right now. Excellence is average. And gotcha. Okay, I gotcha. All right. I'm now following you, living in a world where excellence is average and helping others to get there too. Oh, followed by one of my friends. Yeah, you're followed by one of my buddies. Superman is for real. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, heck yeah, my man, Mr. James Dixon. He is the man, and we've gotten to know each other through another mutual contact, Mike Abramowitz. You mentioned him before, and Mike actually connected me to James, and we're doing some really cool things together right now. He's got a Taking Authority deal tour that he's got going that we're working on together, and we've got some other things in the work. And then Absolute Motivation is a YouTube site that that's actually one that, that I should be pitching, and I forgot about it. It's new that we're doing that. There's, it's got 1.4 million subscribers, 200 million views. It's a fantastic platform. They mm-hmm. uh, launch a couple times a week. There's a new video out and it's all about motivation. And I'm on some of them speaking. We're going to start doing some video now. That's a James Dixon deal that he started. And I'm just super excited mm-hmm. to be part of that as well. And I'd love to promote that because I'm on there weekly. I love being on Absolute Motivation. And I remember when I got referred to James, I went on there and watched that. And it was, yeah, absolutely amazing. Love it. Well, so MikeOster.com is the place that we can find you and we can find out what you're up to on social media. Excellence is, let me, one more time. Excellence Excellence is my average. average. Excellence is average. Excellence is average. Fantastic. We've made it to the lightning round of questions here, Mike, before we wrap things up. And I want to go down the big rabbit hole here because I can see you have a bunch of books behind you and I'm like a giant nerd with books. I'd love to ask if there are one to three books over there on your shelf that you'd recommend, what might be the top one to three books that you'd recommend to us? Mine, of course, would be the number one recommendation. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm an old school guy. I read all the current stuff, right? The Start With Why and the David Goggins and the Jocko and the John Maxwell. All these, it's all good stuff. I've read it and I'm listening to them. But when people ask me for book recommendations, I always give them the same three. I give them mine, of course. And then nice. I give them See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. I think it's fun. I love his humor. And there's just some great nuggets and takeaways in there. And then I give them How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I fought reading that book forever because I think the title is so misleading. It makes it sound like I'm going to trick people into being my friend. But once I read it, and I probably read it 15 years ago the first time, which meant it was 60 years old then, it is everything in that book is true today. If you just do what's in that book, you will be a good human and you will have success. If you just follow the stuff that he's got in there, it's just so simple, but so many people are not doing it. Those are two of my favorites. And I always tell young, especially young people, when they say, it's on the military, that's real big general, what's on your reading list? And I always tell them that. And some of them roll their eyes, some of them go out and read it, and they come back and see me, and they're like, those are incredible. They're time, they're just, they're timeless. So those are my recommendations. I love everything you just said. Every name you just said, I've got on the shelf. These are like, this is some of the best stuff out there, especially Carnegie. Carnegie on the shelf, this is probably the one of the top three books of all time for me personally, because my father gifted it to me when he was selling Amway uh, back in 1991. I still have the original copy right back here, the, the cover ripped. And uh, sweetest sound in the human language is out of someone's name. That's why you remember names. It's because you want to honor people with their name. I love it. Thank you. Is there a song or a musician or just a type of music that inspires you and fills your bucket? Oh, yeah. 80s music, man. It's just 80s music is, is my thing. I like the 80s pop. I like 80s rock. And I, I get into ACDC and a little bit of hard rock, but not yes. real deep into hard rock. So yeah, just 80s music in general. The current country stuff is cool too. But if I need to get pumped up, if I'm in the gym, I'm, if I'm not listening to a podcast or a book, I'm listening to 80s rock. Okay. Well, in that case, what podcast, if you have a podcast of choice, other than the Eternal Optimist podcast, what what is exactly. your podcast of choice, Mike? Exactly. <laughs> well, yours is number one, and then right below that, I've come on to a few that I'm really enjoying. Ed Milet, I really like. John Gordon's got some cool stuff out there. His books and his podcast, I'm a fan of listening to him. 
I'm glad I found yours. I actually have listened to it several times since you and I first connected. And you've got some great guests and great different messages. It's not so much the podcast host. It's who are they having on for guests and what's the conversation? How is it going? And so that's how I find them and, and start listening to them. And that I can't remember the number there, but there's thousands of new ones starting every year. And so I'm a scroller. I just keep looking for, I'll put in positive attitude or motivation or whatever, and names will come up and I'll just grab one and listen that day. Excellent. Last question here, Mike, is around our name of our show, the Eternal Optimist Podcast. When you hear Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you? A couple of things. It makes me think that other people roll their eyes when they hear something like Eternal Optimist. When I hear it, I think that it's a commitment to saying that life is going to have challenges. Life is going to be hard. Life is going to have ups and downs, regardless if it's a success or a failure. If I'm an eternal optimist, I'm going to be willing to try to find the good in what just happened to me. And so two things you'll find in my book. One is a quote by Colin Powell that says, optimism is a force multiplier. And the second thing you'll see in my book is a story about how when I was leading, especially when I was getting ready to deploy and and go into combat as a leader, I had a rule with the people that reported to me that they could not bring me issues. They had to bring me opportunities. And it's simply a difference in the way that they perceive what they're about to brief me. If they see it as an opportunity, they're going to brief me in a whole different way, and they're probably going to provide a solution at the same time. People would say, I believe that I am a very optimistic person. And some people would say, you think everything is just great. And I don't think everything is great. I think life is hard. I've had very difficult challenges in my life. And I haven't always felt this way. But as an eternal optimist, I think you're making a choice on how you're going to live life that I'm going to try to find good when things happen. No matter what those things are, tragic as they may be, I want to find something good or how can I grow from this or what did we learn or what can we make positive out of this negative happening. But it's and it's a life choice. Eternal optimists are life choices. I can choose to live like that or I can choose not to. I want to choose for good instead of choosing for evil.